Hello and welcome to Yuskogans, the International Law Podcast. Uh, this episode is a collaboration between Yuskogans and the Netherlands Network for Human Rights uh, Research, uh, also known as NNHRR, uh, which associates junior and senior human rights researchers in the Netherlands and aims to connect human rights research and practice. The TMC Aster Institute has been interested with the coordination and administration of this network. Um, so, the, so the network uh, maintains and strengthens cooperation among the human rights researchers in the Netherlands and abroad. It also provides inter-university research network context to researchers, PhDs in particular, uh, and it also enhances the visibility of Dutch human rights research nationally and internationally and promotes participation in international human rights uh, research projects. Um, I'm very excited about today's um, podcast uh, and the guest. We are going to talk about climate uh, litigation and how that fits within the international legal framework. Uh, I'm joined today by Professor Otto Spikers. Um, I, I hope I pronounced uh, your name correctly. Please uh, let me know if, if it's uh, not uh, so accurate. Uh, he is a professor of international law at Wuhan University, China Institute of Boundary and Ocean Studies, uh, CIBOS, CBOS, I think uh, that's how it's uh, pronounced, as well as its Research Institute for of Inter Environmental Law, RIEL. And he's also the founding staff member of its International Water Law Academy, IWLA. Uh, Professor Spikers is also a member of the Committee on the Role of International Law in Sustainable Natural Resource Management for Development of International Law Association. Um, he is involved in teaching and research in the field of international law generally, but specifically he focuses on international water law, law of the sea, uh, and general issues within uh, international law as well. Uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Professor Otto Spikers, for joining on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you today with me. Yeah, it's a great privilege uh, to be uh, with you and uh, to have this uh, discussion. And uh, I want to uh, commend you on the pronunciation of my name because that was perfect. Oh, <laughs> good to know. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I'll just get started right away. Um, so this is something that I'm uh, also interested in and I'm, I have uh, had some experience working with uh, climate change law in the past uh, as well. Um, I, I, I realized that uh, you uh, spent considerable time at Leiden University where I also did my uh, LLM from a few years back. Um, so I, I, I want to understand, um, Professor Spikers, that how do you broadly understand climate litigation? Uh, is it similar to public interest or strategic human rights litigation? Or is it something else? Uh, yeah, just an overview. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that is something we have in common. Huh? So I did my PhD at uh, Leiden University at the Grotius Center for International Legal Studies. And then I went to Utrecht and now I'm here in Wuhan University in China. Um, but to answer your question, so the term uh, climate litigation, uh, well, I think it refers to legal proceedings that are initiated uh, to establish responsibility for failure to prevent climate change. And these legal proceedings can be initiated at courts, tribunals um, and other rule compliance monitoring bodies. Um, and they can be initiated both at the domestic, the regional or the global level. And they can be based on rules of domestic, uh, regional and international law or combination. And they can be both of a public, 
that is an administrative law character or of a private civil law character. Um, and I am focusing on uh, two cases that have been initiated in the Netherlands courts. Um, actually, both have been uh, have begun in the district court in The Hague, The Hague, Netherlands. That's my hometown. And they were both tort cases, so civil law cases. But the plaintiffs did refer a lot to international human rights law. So that, that is something I wanted to focus on in our discussion. Uh, and you are asking me whether uh, climate litigation is public interest litigation or what is the, the relationship between the two. And I, I think that's true. So climate litigation is a subcategory of public interest litigation uh, because some claimant initiates a case uh, not in its own interest, but in the general interest or the interest of society. And society can mean lots of things. It can refer to a state's entire population or part thereof, but it can also refer to both present and future generations of a state. And it can even refer to the entire world's present and future generations. So that's a lot of people. And then um, the link with human rights litigation. Uh, climate litigation can indeed be based partly or fully on international or European human rights law. And I believe this was the case to a large extent for the Urgenda and Shell cases, but I guess we will talk about that more later. Um, but of course, there's also human rights litigation that is completely unrelated to climate change. I mean, that's the broader category. Um, yeah, I think that is it. Uh, no, thank you. That's, uh, that's very comprehensive. Uh, I'm glad that you uh, spoke about the two cases that we are going to discuss in just a bit, Urgenda uh, uh, and Milieu Defensi. Uh, I, I think I have uh, <laughs> probably not pronounced them correctly, but we, we will uh, come to that. Um, I, I, I want to uh, understand uh, in terms of the international legal framework, which exists on uh, environmental law and climate change uh, regimes as well, uh, is how how what is the existing structure of uh, of of this law, and how does that uh, affect uh, climate change litigation or climate litigation that happens around the world, including uh, in the Netherlands? Yeah. So there, when it comes to climate litigation, there is a lot of different uh, strategies that are being tried and tested. Um, and I wanted to focus in this discussion on the strategy that is sort of based on human rights law. Um, and this is a very European strategy, I think. So basically the argument, it's actually quite simple, uh, is that uh, if the phenomenon of climate change is not stopped or at least mitigated, then the consequences of climate change, like uh, rising sea levels, uh, droughts, floods, rising temperatures and so on, they will actually constitute a, a very threat to people's lives and well-being. And the state then has a duty to protect the lives of all people within its jurisdiction. So if it doesn't do so, uh, then that would constitute a breach of the human right to life and the human right to well-being. So it's actually the state that is under an obligation to guarantee uh, well, a decent life, but also a clean and healthy and sustainable environment to everybody residing within its jurisdiction. So that's basically the, the human rights based approach to climate litigation. But there is, of course, other possibilities. 
And there's also other relevant international law. So the Urgenda and Shell cases, they're not only about human rights. They are in essence about uh, the duty of care as it exists under Dutch domestic tort law. So it's about a duty of care. And uh, what it means to comply with this duty of care, mm, that in part depends on internationally agreed standards of uh, decent behavior, so to say. And these international standards the court finds in human rights instruments, like the European Covenant on Human Rights, but also in uh, soft law, like the Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights, the, the Ruggy Principles of 2011, um, but also in uh, more uh, traditional international environmental or climate change law, like the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Kyoto Protocol, Paris Agreement, and uh, European Union environmental law. So all this uh, the court uses to set this uh, international legal standard and this duty of care that has to be complied with both by the state of the Netherlands and by Shell, the uh, international corporation Shell. Right. Uh, no, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so uh, I'll just come to the cases, but uh, just before uh, I do that, um, based on what you have just shared uh, on the duty of care uh, and the human rights uh, uh, approaches as well, and the general uh, international legal framework, uh, which obliges actors to uh, ensure well-being uh, of people. Um, how, do, how do you understand the responsibility of governments and corporations around the world in managing uh, climate risks? Uh, and what are they really obliged to do in this regard? Yeah, yeah. So this term um, climate change risk, that is a term that sort of reappears more and more uh, often and with more and more self-confidence, I would say, because we are getting to understand better and better what it means. Mm. So maybe I will say first few words about what climate change risks are, in my view. Um, so in the future, the climate will be significantly warmer than it was before and extreme weather events like heat waves, storms, uh, droughts, forest fires, floods, heavy rains, and so on and so on. They will occur more frequently and they will probably also be more severe than in the past. And of course, the sea level will rise and uh, there will be a continuing loss of ecosystems and biodiversity, also marine biodiversity. Huh? We recently negotiated a treaty on this. So these and other negative consequences of climate change, and I think unfortunately that all of them are inevitable, uh, they will make it difficult for various actors to shoulder their ordinary responsibilities in the future. You already see this uh, in, everywhere in the world, eh, that energy providers like Shell, they find it more and more difficult to provide uh, enough energy to people. And uh, in the future, hospitals may not be able to treat all their patients because uh, a lot of illnesses caused by heat waves will particularly uh, affect the elderly. And farmers may not be able to provide enough food to feed the population because droughts, water scarcity and salt water intrusion into the groundwater, they all negatively affect their, um, their crops and so on. 
So um, there's a lot of climate change risks and a lot of actors, they really need to sort of reconsider their ordinary activities and adapt them uh, to these risks. And, and that is a big responsibility, not only of the government, but primarily of the government, because most people uh, look to the government and expect it to develop some kind of climate change policy uh, with a reasonable allocation of responsibilities for managing all these climate change risks. Yeah? So it's the government that tells people, you have to do this, you're responsible for that, and so on. And maybe ordinary people expect multinational corporations and states also to carry most of the burden. Okay, maybe I'm being a bit cynical here, but I think that ordinary people are rather reluctant to make significant changes to their own daily lives, especially if that affects their current standard of living, uh, the, the standard that they're used to by now. And that in turn will result in a kind of reluctance of especially democratic governments to impose drastic measures because that will make them unpopular and then of course they will lose the next uh, election and so this is a bit where the courts can be helpful um, because uh, when the government is reluctant to uh, yeah to take the necessary measures then the uh, sorry when yeah when the government is reluctant to take the necessary measures to in response to these climate change risks then the courts can sort of jump in and play the role of a catalyst so the courts can then uh, remind the uh, the government of its responsibilities right uh, no thank you for that uh, uh, insightful explanation uh, and there's something that that i would like to uh, uh, you know take a small uh, segue on, you talk about individual responsibility uh, of uh, peop ordinary people to um, also uh, change their lifestyles uh, in order to reduce carbon emissions uh, generally. Um, I, I, I have come across uh, some literature um, by civil society groups uh, and also INGOs, uh, which the argument sort of goes like this, uh, that because there are certain um, major countries uh, and corporations, around 100 corporations and like uh, a handful of countries which are responsible for most of the carbon emissions. So individuals around the world, even if they make small changes in their lifestyles, uh, they would not be able to impact uh, the global uh, impact on climate change. How, how do you uh, see, how do you understand that? Yeah, yeah, I know it's a very common uh, uh, excuse, but it's not um, a valid excuse. So actually, the both the Netherlands and Shell, they also um, use this as an excuse. So the Netherlands uh, in the Urgenda case said, okay, if we uh, will stop um, emitting greenhouse gases altogether, then maybe the Netherlands will go bankrupt. But the world is not saved when everybody else just continues to emit uh, greenhouse gases. And, and Shell has, has made a similar argument, but for Shell, it's a little bit difficult to make because it's such a huge company. Yeah. So actually, their emission is quite large. But for the Netherlands, it's, it's quite minor compared to many other states. Right. But it's then just, it, yeah. it really kind of depends how you look at the statistics. I mean, mm -hmm. If you look at it at an individual level, 
than the average uh, Dutch person uh, emits a lot more greenhouse gases than the average Chinese person. But of course, China as a country emits a lot more greenhouse gases than the Netherlands, but that's because there's 1.5 billion people in China and only 18 million people in the Netherlands. Right. Uh, can you talk a bit about the two cases that we have been uh, uh, referring to, the Urkenda case and the, the Shell cases? What really happened in these cases uh, and what makes them significant if, if they are? Yeah, well, they definitely are. I, I'm very proud to, uh, to be Dutch and, and to come from The Hague, uh, which uh, that's actually the, the Hague District Court that is responsible for both these rulings, both the Urgenda and the Shell case. So let me start with the Urgenda case. That is probably the best known example of climate litigation uh, even today. So it has received a lot of attention in the scholarly literature and it has inspired many people and foundations all over the world to initiate similar proceedings. So it was a case initiated by a foundation called Urgenda and that's a foundation established under Dutch private law and the case was directed against um, my home state, uh, the state of the Netherlands. And Urgenda held the Netherlands responsible for not doing enough to prevent uh, dangerous climate change or mitigate the harmful effects thereof. And uh, they argued that it should be qualified, that this inaction should be qualified as a breach of the duty of care, as it exists under Dutch domestic tort law, and as a breach of Articles 2 and 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. So that's the right to life and the right to well-being or family life, yeah. And following the earlier rulings of the Dutch District Court of 2015, eh, so that's a long time ago, uh, and the Appeals Court of 2018, the Supreme Court of the Netherlands ruled in Urgenda's favor uh, in 2019. And the District Court relied mostly on this uh, duty of care argument, but the Appeals and Supreme Court, they relied a lot on international human rights law. Um, and then the other case, the Shell case, that is more recent. So in uh, 2018, Milieu Defensie, that's Friends of the Earth Netherlands, uh, they began a case against the giant global oil company Shell. And at that time, uh, Shell was still headquartered in my hometown of The Hague, Netherlands. They recently relocated. Maybe we can talk about this later. It's kind of interesting development. But at that time, they were still headquartered in The Hague. And in May of 2021, so last year, the district court delivered its judgment and it agreed with the claimants that Royal Dutch Shell is doing too little to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and prevent serious climate change. And serious climate change is already caused when there's global warming of over 1.5 degrees Celsius. So in view of the court, uh, Royal Dutch Shell was thereby acting unlawful and it must uh, significantly reduce its greenhouse gas emissions uh, to bring them in line with uh, global climate objectives reached in the Paris Agreement. And more specifically, the court ordered Shell to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by at least 45% uh, by 2030 compared with 2019 levels. 
and this applies to uh, shell the whole of shell huh? so there's mm, i mean shell is active all over the world i was recently uh, on holiday in xi'an and there's like, petrol stations there too uh, shell petrol stations yeah it's it's quite common so that is um a bit what happened um and maybe because we're talking we're focusing mostly on human rights law i do want to emphasize that the shell case is perhaps of the two the most revolutionary uh, because the court of course first made clear that the claimants cannot directly invoke articles 2 and 8 with respect to shell because human rights only apply in the relationship between a state and the individuals residing within the state's jurisdiction or control and so they don't apply in the relations between an individual and a corporation but the court did believe that it is appropriate to factor in uh, human rights and the values uh, these human rights embody in the court's interpretation of what is required of shell to meet its duty of care and in making this argument uh, the court referred extensively to the UN guiding principles on business and human rights so that's the ruggy principles and I think that part of the judgment is really progressive it basically yeah it basically interprets these guiding principles as a sort of document that is binding on shell right so um, based on these two examples of uh, climate litigation and you have spoken at length uh, why uh, they are significant uh, and uh, you also mentioned that how regional and international uh, references were made by courts uh, in the cases so using these two cases as sort of a reference point what lessons do you think that other countries and even the regional and regional and international bodies can learn in order to shape the foundations of a global climate change law and how can this litigation strategy be uh, adopted or copied in other jurisdictions uh, yeah 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 so i think it is it's just one possible strategy so there are others and uh, they are all being tried and and that's kind of interesting to see how different strategies lead to different results so the um, urgenda case in the netherlands and the shell case is probably the best known example of sort of first generation climate litigation in europe um, and uh, yeah a lot of uh, other ngos have uh, are now trying uh, the same strategy so there's um, a case in Belgium, the so-called Klimaatzaak, which is basically copying the Urgenda strategy. But there was also a very successful case in France, uh, a case decided in October of 2021 by the Paris Administrative Court. And this court ordered the state of France to compensate for the ecological consequences caused by its failure to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and combat climate change and that was an administrative law case so not a court case a court sorry not a tort case based on international human rights law um, so that again shows the great variety that exists within this collection of even european climate litigation cases and then if i'm not mistaken i think most climate litigation in the united states of america 
is also more of this administrative law character and there the focus is more on uh, claiming financial compensation for damage uh, caused by climate change that is already suffered. And this I really want to emphasize, so the Urgenda and Shell cases are both uh, preventative action cases. So the claimants basically argue that the state and the corporation, so that's the Netherlands and Shell, they must change their future public or corporate policies, otherwise they will be acting in breach of the duty of care. So these cases are a lot less controversial because they are uh, forward-looking and not backward-looking. And so they will never result in the awarding of huge financial compensation obligations. So it's much easier for a court uh, to tell a state or a company to be more climate-friendly in the future rather than to hold it responsible for all greenhouse gas emitted throughout its past existence. I mean, uh, the Shell uh, transport and trading companies focus on selling petrol, so kerosene, can already be dated back to um, 1897, I think. Uh, 1897, so that's a really long time ago. Yeah, that's, that's, so that's... if you are now asking Shell to pay compensation for all the greenhouse gas emitted since 1897, that may lead to uh, absurd awarding of financial compensation. But if the case is more forward-looking, simply obliging Shell to change its policy today to act better in the future, yeah, that may be more realistic. Um, so that is why I think those preventive action cases like Urgenda and Shell, they are probably more helpful in, um, yeah, building um, a better future right so so just taking something from 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 this point uh, i'm sure you're uh, familiar with the classic argument of uh, developing nations uh, about using fossil fuels to enrich their economies uh, that the developed world already did that uh, in the prior centuries uh, so if we use this future uh, oriented approach to uh, hold companies and governments accountable for uh, carbon emissions, how would that apply to uh, countries uh, and uh, you know developing nations that are not in that stage of industrialization where they can uh, afford to switch to renewable sources uh, right away? Uh, so how, how how would you reconcile that? Yeah, of course that should be taken into account. Huh? So the. Uh, the standard of civilization and, and so on. But um, I, d I don't think it is fair to say that climate litigation is a, a particularly Western or developed nations type of thing. So now I'm now in, in China and I, I'm also interested to see at whether there's possibilities to do climate litigation here in China. Um, and there are uh, possibilities huh? and it's uh, it's getting better and better because China is more and more concerned with um, protection of the environment and the adverse consequences of climate change. I mean, they're clearly visible, uh, as is the case everywhere in the world. So increasingly, it is possible for uh, environmental, environmental NGOs and also the procuratorate to engage in what they call environmental public interest litigation. 
and you can even initiate cases against a provincial government or, or some other authority. Um, but mostly these cases um, relate to air pollution. But of course, the, the problematic of air pollution and climate change, yeah, they are very similar. So that might also open opportunities for climate litigation in the broader sense. Right. Um, um, yeah. So um, just uh, moving to the latter part of uh, the podcast, um, in your opinion, what is the future of uh, climate litigation? Will the growing uh, seriousness of the issue lead to some other transformations in how we hold uh, major emitters accountable through courts, tribunals, or other adjudication mechanisms? How do you see this uh, going forward? Yeah, so I think the the more often these corporations or big states have to explain uh, the, the, their lack of action to combat climate change, uh, the, the, the more often they're asked to explain. Um, yeah, the, 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 the more often the excuses that they always come up with are sort of tried and tested. And some really fail to convince. And, and that is something that I, I really like about the agenda and the shell cases that the court um, deals with some of these excuses in a very persuasive and, and very like direct uh, way. So maybe that we can also discuss. Sure. Yeah. If, if, if you want to add, add something uh, in, in that regard, please uh, feel free to do so. Yeah, so there's these arguments that are always cropping up. Like, for example, Shell made the argument uh, that it was actually complying with all legal obligations and standards that are binding on it, uh, both under international uh, European Union and domestic law. And that is kind of true. So Shell did not breach a single uh, statute or treaty uh, or directive. But still, it's, um, it was acting in breach of this unwritten standard of due care. And that is possible. I mean, that has happened also in other uh, cases in the past. And so even if you are complying with all the law that uh, is applicable to you, it can still be that you are not acting in compliance with the standard of due care. And then there's this uh, yeah, the drop in the ocean argument that we already discussed, huh? that um, if the Netherlands or Shell uh, would stop emitting greenhouse gas, then this would not save the world, because if the rest of the world would just continue to emit greenhouse gases, there would be no significant change. Um, and with this argument, the court deals very effectively. It basically reminds the state and Shell that uh, we all have to shoulder our part of a globally shared responsibility. And if we all shoulder our part, then the problem will be solved. And then there's also this, uh, uh, the, yeah, I always refer to it as the waterbed argument. So the idea is that companies uh, will escape from a state with um, rather strict and activist courts uh, rather strict rules and activist courts to uh, a state that is more flexible. Um, uh, and indeed, Shell did relocate its headquarters from The Hague 
in the Netherlands to uh, London in the United Kingdom. Uh, but then Shell denied that this relocation had anything to do with the litigation. And Shell did, in fact, acknowledge that it will continue to be bound by the ruling of the Hague courts and that it will also comply with this ruling. And if the case moves to the appellate and the Supreme Court level, the relocation of the headquarters has no effect. So the Dutch Appeal Court and the Dutch Supreme Court will still have jurisdiction over the case. Um, but the, the argument, of course, is, is, is of a more general nature. The idea is that if Shell would stop uh, emitting greenhouse gas, um, yeah, then some other company may just jump in and be just as polluting. But of course, you can also argue that if Shell shows, uh, if, if Shell gives the good example and shows that you can actually make a profit by um, renewable energy, by switching to renewable energy, then maybe a lot of other oil companies will follow that excellent example. Um, yeah, and then, of course, also you hear very often that um, that maybe climate change is a big problem, but that there are more urgent problems to deal with now. Yeah, and then references made to the COVID or maybe to the uh, Russian aggression against uh, Ukraine. Yeah, so then the idea is we have to deal with this now and then maybe later we can deal with climate change. But uh, that also is, of course, not a valid excuse. And the court has already emphasized that um, the protection of the right to life also regards uh, risks that may only materialize in the longer term uh, and the obligation to take appropriate steps uh, also encompasses a duty uh, upon the state to take preventive measures to counter uh, dangers even if the materialization of that danger is uncertain and has not yet manifested itself fully uh, and then the court in making this argument also refers to the precautionary principle. So if we are not exactly sure what is going to happen, then we have to err on the side of caution. Okay, um, yeah, that's, 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 uh, there are a lot of things that uh, are very interesting in your response. There, there's one more thing that, that I want to, um, uh, want you to respond to before uh, I let you go. Um, mm -hmm. so, so there's this um, problem of attribution uh, as well in terms of uh, establishing causation between emissions and their consequences. So, for example, if uh, certain countries are disproportionately uh, emitting um, uh, carbon emissions and uh, the consequences are faced by more vulnerable countries and it, it's, it's not a straightforward equation of establishing that somebody did this, which led to somebody facing this, whether it's like uh, deprivation of uh, right to water or uh, right to uh, healthy environment. So how does how, how do you think that we can address that problem through the existing systems that are in place to ensure uh, that accountability is fair and proportional to yeah. uh, the actions here? Well, yeah, so there is some things to say about so uh, one thing that may be interesting to mention is that uh, both states but also major corporations like shell 
they are actually under an obligation uh, to report on their greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so they have to each year they have to report on how much uh, greenhouse gas is emitted from their territory or uh, by their operations in case of Shell. And that, of course, has helped the plaintiffs a lot. So they don't have to do the, this research. It's actually done by the respondents um, themselves. And so that, that really helps in establishing a, a kind of, uh, um, yeah, the, the evidence and also the, the causal links. But with Shell, it's a bit tricky because, um, yeah, I didn't mention that before, but you have to make a distinction between different kinds of emissions. So there's scope one, scope two and scope three emissions. Basically, scope one emissions are emissions of Shell's own operations and scope two are emissions by companies that sort of surface uh, Shell operations. And then scope three is um, greenhouse gas emitted by the consumers of Shell's products. So that's basically everybody who drives a car uh, that runs on uh, Shell petrol. And like the fast um, percentage of emissions is uh, scope three. I think it's it's over 80% of the um, greenhouse gas emitted by Shell is scope three emissions. Um, so that that's kind of complicates matters a little bit um, to establish this direct uh, causal link uh, that both uh, that the uh, yeah the, most of the greenhouse gas actually emitted by consumers of Shell's products. Mm. Uh, but I think if you if you focus on preventive action cases rather than um, claiming financial compensation for damage already suffered, then establishing these causal links is much less problematic. Because if you want a Shell to pay compensation uh, for damage that Shell has allegedly caused to you as a person, it's much harder to prove all these causal links. Um, but if you just want uh, Shell to be more environmentally friendly in the future, then you don't really need to show that you as a person are uh, adversely affected by the operations of Shell. And so this causal link you don't really have to establish. That is also why I think preventive action cases like the Urgenda and Shell case or maybe also easier than uh, these more traditional uh, claims for uh, financial compensation. Right. Yeah. There's, there's so much to uh, discuss uh, in, in this area, but unfortunately, we are a little short on time. Um, oh, so thanks. final um, question uh, for you. Uh, is an effective global cl climate change law likely to become a reality? Um, and what sort of opportunities and challenges uh, challenges exist in this regard yeah mm. so we have focused mostly on um, these the, the kind of climate litigation that is based on human rights law and of course um, if we look to the future then uh, we have to mention also the um, the case currently before the European Court of Human Rights have brought by these four Portuguese children uh, and uh, two young adults, I think also. 
They initiate the case against all EU member states and the United Kingdom, Norway, Russia, Turkey, Switzerland, and also Ukraine. And they hold all these states jointly responsible for failure to take effective measures to mitigate harmful effects of climate change, especially forest fires. Um, and they add a new dimension that I think is kind of interesting. They claim that this, um, this lack of action is also a breach of um, the provision. I don't remember which one that is. The provision that um, says that that provides that the enjoyment of the rights and freedoms in the European Convention on Human Rights must be secured without discrimination. And they are arguing that um, this inaction constitutes age discrimination because it disproportionately affects uh, youth. Um, and, and that I think is really interesting. So to answer your question, uh, I think uh, if this human rights based approach is to become truly effective, uh, yeah, then it should maybe focus a bit more on the particular vulnerability of youth and future generations. Uh, but that, of course, raises a lot of uh, uh, legal and philosophical problems yeah, about representation of future generations uh, and so on. And that is something that uh, the Urgenda and the Shell cases have not really dealt with, uh, this problem of uh, representation of future generations. And I hope that in uh, future cases, maybe this issue will be addressed more directly by the courts. Mm -hmm. Right, perfect. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Otto Spikers. This has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you uh, on climate litigation and everything uh, therein. Um, yeah, um, thank you so much for being on the podcast and taking out time. Uh, good luck to you with your research. Um, and that's all from this episode. I hope you enjoyed uh, today's uh, discussion and hopefully I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.